released with these themes, including the next big one, which is going to come out in a couple months, telling us about the year 2012, and that's the year that the uh, earth will end, just three years from now. Among Christians, that interest in the end times takes the form of what one writer called newspaper eschatology. I like that. As a result, we have many so-called prophets or prophecy teachers, many of whom unfortunately have a pretty large audience through TV or books or radio or the internet or even all four. They're searching the scripture for the specific meanings behind the news of the day, and this often leads to what we've just discovered. Just about anyone, anywhere can be the Antichrist. Some have called this dangerous game, pin the tail on the Antichrist. In fact, let me tell you about how Ronald Reagan supposedly uh, was identified as the Antichrist, or at least this is one version of that story. If you count the letters in our late president's name, you'll discover a very sinister pattern. There's Ronald, six letters. There's Wilson, six letters. And there's Reagan, six letters. That's 666. Get that? Well, I got to say, if that's all it takes for someone to to seriously consider someone as the Antichrist, then I'm in trouble. For all I know, after today's sermon, somebody's going to accuse me of being the Antichrist. Well, when Bruce came on and began to do some of our accounting and some of our payroll, we swore him to secrecy, the number that the computer system has assigned to me for my payroll. But this morning, I'm going to reveal this to you in the presence of all my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the number 66. If you take that and add the six letters of one of my email names, B. Sully, you come up with, yes, that's right. 666. Make of that what you will. Now, you know, we can laugh about that this morning, but there's a real problem with the popular eschatology of the day. Eschatology is the fancy word for the study of the end times. A quick look through a Christian bookstore or a quick Google search will tell you just how much stuff is out there on this particular topic. The prospect of imminent doom for sinners is apparently much more popular than just at a day-to-day walking with Jesus Christ. Without judging the motivation of the authors of these books, one of the things I want to accomplish this morning is to help us think critically about these things and to look carefully at what Scripture says about our general stance toward the end times and what it should be. Well-meaning yet unbalanced or unbiblical teaching is still unbalanced or unbiblical, even if it's well-meaning. Let me first state right up front, I want to say this so there can be absolutely no misunderstanding this morning. I believe Scripture teaches the return of Jesus Christ. The things I say this morning are not meant to undermine in any way that Jesus is coming back to take his children home with him. And the TCF leadership takes no official position on the details of how this is going to happen or when. We might have opinions, but they're just that. They're opinions. So some of you may be disappointed because of what I will not do this morning. I won't offer you an alternative to some of the speculation that's out there or guess who might be right. I won't name anyone as the Antichrist, including myself. 
I won't give you a date. I won't give you a month or a year or a decade or even a century for the second coming or for the rapture. I won't try to match the symbols in Revelation or Daniel or any other passages of Scripture with current events. There's a sound reason I'm not going to do these things this morning. Because Jesus said, it's none of my business. And even if it was, I can't know it anyway. Jesus himself said he doesn't know it. In Acts 1-7, Jesus told his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In the Greek, this means literally, it does not belong to you, or it is not of you. This nuance reflects the idea that Jesus was telling his disciples, it's not your concern to know the times and the dates. In popular English, this might be paraphrased, it's none of your business to know the dates of future events which my Father has appointed. This wasn't a new teaching of Jesus. He had already taught that the kingdom of God could not be observed through signs. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In Matthew 24, 36, Jesus said, No one knows that day or that hour. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, we see again, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, I realize that some of you might be thinking... And perhaps your thinking is prompted by some of that newspaper eschatology that's out there. Things you've heard preachers say or you've heard in books. You may be thinking, well, doesn't Scripture also say you are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief? Doesn't Scripture say specifically we can't know the day or the hour? But it doesn't specifically say we can't know the week or the month or the year. Date setters argue that Jesus is essentially saying, go ahead with your predictions, but don't try to narrow it down to the day or the hour. Well, one writer calls this an attempt to pull an end run on God and to find out what he expressly indicated is not to be known. It's like pitting the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Think about this. Since the spirit of, our, of the law looks at our hearts as does God, we see that God chided the Pharisees for following so specifically just the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit of the law. But because of these things, I think we're on dangerous ground when we try to rationalize our way around what should be a pretty clear statement from our Lord Jesus. It's the kind of double talk that makes so many of us Americans despise our politicians. Do we really want people rightly accusing Christians of the same kind of thing? Think of it this way. If you told your child, for example, don't eat the cookies. We want to save them for company. But he or she ate one and you found out. And your child responded like this. I didn't eat the cookies. Cookies is plural. I ate one and there are still plenty left for company. Now, would you find an answer like that as a parent? Would you find an answer like that satisfying? Would that be an acceptable answer to you as a parent? Is that in keeping with what you intended? Clearly, it isn't. The more detailed one attempts to map out the future, the more inferences one must make which are not explicit in the Scripture. 
Therefore, the tendency of the imagination to fill the gaps increases and the probability of erroneous calculation grows. So says John Piper. I could get into this morning a lot of theological hair splitting that the date setters or what one writer called the calendarizers have tried to do to get around the clear meaning of these scriptures that we just cited. I could take some time examining the Greek meaning of the words day and hour and tell you how these, according to the context, can mean general, uh, an appointed general time period and maybe not necessarily a literal day or hour, depending on the context. I could point you to scriptures where the word translated day can mean a period from several months to an indefinite period of years. But you know what? I'm not going to waste time with that this morning. What I want to emphasize is the context in which these statements were made and the point that Jesus and in the epistles, Paul and Peter, were trying to make. We don't know the time of his return, and we don't need to know. It doesn't affect our relationship with the Lord Jesus, and it doesn't impact our salvation, and it doesn't affect our ability to follow him with our whole hearts. Date setting, over-speculation on the details is missing the point. The emphasis in these passages of scriptures is on watchfulness and readiness, and that means our hearts, and it's on holiness. It's not on speculation as to when things are going to happen and how they're going to happen. In fact, I think we could make a case that if we latch a little bit too dogmatically onto one of the many possible eschatology models that are out there, it could impact our faith in a negative way. All of the positions that you've heard about or read about regarding the end times, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, preterism, that may be a new one for some of you. Those are all out there. All of these various understandings of eschatology base their views on Scripture. But here's the problem. According to Gene Edward Veith, the problem is Scripture is not clear on all of these questions, which makes the various interpretations possible. So Christians ought not to approach them with such certainty. Christians should be leery of building their faith on expectations of Christ's imminent return rather than what Christ has already done for us on the cross. Remember, we're looking at these things again with an eye toward equipping ourselves to think, to discern sound doctrine on these issues, as well as to gain a proper biblical balanced perspective on our approach to the end times. We have to remember that ideas have consequences. The way we think inevitably impacts how we act in this world. Let me give you a few more examples uh, from Gene Edward Veith. These fine points of biblical prophecy, he writes, are not mere examples of Antichrist dancing on the head of a pin. Rather, they have broader implications as to how Christians are to live in the world. The, the postmillennialists, try to say that five times real fast, the postmillennialists will tend to be activists, optimistically believing Christians really can improve the world. They therefore pour themselves into politics, the arts, and culture making, confident that God's foreordained providence is on their side. 
The danger, though, is that post-millennialists may sometimes think that the church's business is to save the earthly society rather than to save souls, becoming a political cell rather than a supernatural institution whose kingdom is not on this world. Now, premillennialists, in contrast, will tend to see the world spiraling downward in a satanic freefall. Since it's futile for Christians to do much to stop it, they resist entanglements in the world so soon to be ruled by the Antichrist. They tend to be separatists, establishing their own subcultures rather than trying to influence the culture in which they find themselves. To their credit, they, they will be skeptical of utopian claims and will resist the temptations of an intrinsically non-Christian culture. Their temptation, though, will be to ignore their callings to be salt and light in a secular arena. Finally, most Christians historically have been neither post-millennialists nor pre-millennialists. Their eschatology is based not on the coming of some millennial age, but is focused squarely and simply on the coming of Christ, who, in the words of the Nicene Creed, shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Instead of arcane attempts to interpret puzzling prophetic symbolism, these amillennialists concentrate on the clear words of Christ, who said that his return will be unmistakable, that it could happen at any time, and that it will come as a complete surprise. It's very clear that the end times are a key theme in Scripture. In the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 different references to the second coming of Christ. That's one out of every 30 verses. Anything covered that extensively must be important, and it must be so extensive for a reason. Yet this is also the area of Scripture that's most clearly abused and it's been abused throughout church history. William Alnor wrote in a book called Soothsayers of the Second Advent, rumors of the Lord's soon return have cropped up throughout church history. In every case and in every generation, we have found that if we followed Paul's admonition for believers to stick with what they've been told and to keep busy, we would have stopped frenzied end times fever dead in its tracks. Most end-time movements have ended in disappointment for and sometimes embarrassment to genuine believers in Christ. We've seen this again and again in our lifetimes, haven't we? One of the most recent examples is the year 2000, when many Christians were equating the Y2K computer bug with the beginning of the end. Remember that? How quickly we forget that was just nine years ago. Well-meaning believers have never had trouble finding signs of the times in their contemporary events. Did you ever think that the reason for that, the reason everybody can seem to find signs of the times in current events is because these signs are always there? They always exist? Think about it. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, natural disasters, false teachers, people claiming to be Christ, persecution of Christians? Have you ever known a time when that wasn't happening somewhere in the world? Just because some of those things aren't happening today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, doesn't mean they're not happening all over the world in other places. 
How many remember the little booklet that came out in the 1980s called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988? Some of you remember that? This book was written by an ex-NASA scientist, and his name was Edgar Wisenant. 4.5 million copies of this book were sold. I picked one up for free in 1989. (laughs) After 1988 passed without the rapture, you know what he did? He recalculated the dates and amazingly enough sold more books. There was a book that he sold called The Final Shout, Rapture Report 1989. And then I found out that for several more years, he reprinted a similar book with a new date. And I guess he finally stopped doing this in 1993 because that's the last record I could find that this book had been republished with a new date. We can only guess why he quit updating the book year after year. Either nobody was buying his books anymore or maybe he finally gave up and realized that he was wrong so many times he wasn't going to get this right. But here's the question I want to ask and it occurred to me as I was preparing this message. Why did it take so long for this guy to lose his credibility? Why were people continuing to buy his books? Why do so many prophecy teachers have any credibility at all after being wrong so many times? Why are Christians so gullible? You don't think it was mostly unbelievers buying his books, do you? It's sad enough that so many people bought into the predictions by this man There are churches that split over this issue. I remember that back in 88, hearing of some churches that actually split over this issue. But why in the world give any credibility at all to his subsequent predictions? We have a tendency to be gullible about so many things, not just the end times. Folks, I'm here to tell you, why else would so many Christians contribute so regularly to the cluttering of the Internet with email forwards that have little or no basis in fact. As those whose lives and doctrines revolve around the importance of truth, we of all people, we of all people should do all we can to avoid passing along something that's just not true. Regardless of how good it may sound or the evidential value it might appear to have. Considering the source is so incredibly important these days because we are in an information society and technology, and you got to know who you're listening to. There's a lot. I use the Internet regularly. I do a lot of research on the Internet. You need to know who's writing, what their agenda is, and why they're saying or writing what they are writing. It's critical. You can spread a false story with a few clicks of a computer mouse, You know what? There are easy ways to check out the truthfulness of every forwarded email that you receive. Some of my friends are too happy with me sometimes when they forward me one of these things and I quickly and easily check it out and I respond to them and telling them that they're forward, I said, you've been had. And so they're not generally very happy with me when I do that. They think I'm the Internet policeman. Consider this one. In recent years, this was passed along as facts by Christians. Visa credit cards are the mark of the beast. One well-known prophecy teacher, and you can see him on TV often, noted that the number six in Roman numerals is the letters VI. Of course, that's true. 
Next, he said the ancient Greek number six was taken from the sixth letter of their alphabet, the letter sigma, which looks like the English letter S. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but this is not true. Sigma is not the sixth letter in the Greek alphabet. It's the 18th. Finally, he said that the Babylonian Empire's letter A could possibly equal six. Thus, visa stands for 666. This was forwarded around and spread as fact by many well-meaning Christians. So this morning, I'd like all of you to come and lay your visa cards on the altar. (laughs) And we're going to have a visa bonfire immediately following the service. Unless you don't want to do that, which makes you a little bit suspicious. Maybe a willing culprit in spreading the mark of the beast. Something else I discovered in my reading and research for this message, a significant source for one of the oldest radio ministries in the U.S., which also publishes a widely distributed prophecy magazine, is none other than the National Enquirer. They use this as their source for a lot of their information. Now, this ministry doesn't promote this fact, but you know what? They don't hide it either. Another longtime radio prophecy ministry used information taken from another tabloid, the Weekly World News. This is the same kind of publication that reports stories on aliens impregnating children and brain transplants and six-headed dogs and the latest Elvis or Michael Jackson is alive photo. Here's a little bit of a sidebar. You know, you, you, you can't help it when you get in the uh, checkout. You can't help but get... Uh, glance at these things, right? I mean, we admit it. You know, we don't buy them, but we we have to glance at it. My all-time favorite tabloid headline, I looked for it to see if I could see the actual page of it, because there's so many things you can find on the internet, but I couldn't. But I remember it vividly. Chocoholic mother gives birth to candy-coated baby. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? You like that? True biblical prophecy helps us see history as God's plan of redemption, as part of his plan of redemption. That's what we must focus on. If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read a few key verses here this morning. I'm not going to read all of this, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 18. And I'll tell you where we're going to jump around. We're going to start with verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And then let's jump down to verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a key question for us here this morning. What kind of people ought you to be? And then he answers the question for us. You ought to live holy and godly lives 
as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Let's jump down to verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And then verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know all this, be on your guard so that you may be so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. Jim told us about that last week, lawless men, lawlessness, and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, one thing that occurs to me in reading verse 3 about scoffers, are we, and I use that in a generic sense, are we Christians creating scoffers that need not be scoffers? Think about that. When Christians help spread false stories, when Christians engage in irresponsible date setting with pin the tail on the Antichrist, are we helping the enemy to do his work, perhaps undermining or even killing faith in the things that are real? Another important theme in this passage is God's perspective on time versus our perspective on time. Once and for all, can we acknowledge that God does not view time by any human standards at all in any part of our lives, in any part of our lives, but especially when it comes to the end times? He is eternal, so there's no delay at all by his standards That's true if he were to bring down the final curtain on history tomorrow. It's just as true if he chooses to wait another thousand years. If there is a delay, it's in our human understanding. But if there is a delay, we are told the clear purpose of this delay. He is patient with us, and he wants more people to share eternity with him. Just as God can't be confined to any human idea of lateness, he also can't be confined to our speculations about the time of his return. Matthew Henry said all things, past, present, and future, are ever before him. God's perspective on soon, on late, on time is so much different. It's so much higher than ours that we cannot fully understand it, We cannot figure it out. We cannot begin to apply our understanding to it. So here's the question I have to ask myself. Why can't I, why can't we just learn to rest in that? Why can't we just learn to rest in that? Why don't we recognize God's redemptive purpose in our waiting? Not just in waiting on his return, but in waiting for all kinds of things that we are praying fervently for and hoping for and desiring even things that are good. Think about that. Why don't we take the attitude that God is displaying his mercy by not bringing judgment on us today or even according to our well-calculated timetables? We'd have to be honest and say that God has a right to judge the world. He has the right to judge it today. All you have to do is look around and you'll have no problem in recognizing that. But it's one thing to declare that God will judge. It's another thing to say when and how he's scheduled to do it. When I read this passage, especially verse 9, where it says he is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, I find myself convicted. I think one reason so many people get into this end times date setting, this figuring out all the details, is because, you know what? Looking for the Lord's return is inescapably biblical. It really is. Whatever you think about the specifics, the hope of the second coming of Jesus is a vital part of our faith. I like the idea of being lifted out of this world of suffering. Anybody else resonate with that? Out of the pain. You know, no more suffering. It's all done. Of spending eternity with the maker of the universe, spending eternity with the savior of my soul. What a wonderful thought that is. I look forward to that day. You know what? There's also a longing in me for justice. You look around at the world and you see all the injustice in so many places. And I'm like the psalmist. I want to cry out, how long, O Lord? I believe there's in each of us that desire to see justice done because we do understand that there will be a separating of the sheep and the goats because we know that God's judgment will come. Yet when we think of the Old Testament prophets who spoke of God's judgment, there was always an inherent sadness to their words. They'd seen prophetically what God was going to do, and they knew that it would come if the people did not repent. We have to guard ourselves about getting a little bit too gleeful about his judgment. Because for many, his ultimate judgment will mean eternity in hell. So you know what? This is a both-and situation for me. The Apostle John's prayer in Revelation 22.20 is, Come, Lord Jesus. In Titus 2.12, it speaks of waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So his coming will mean both indescribable joy for followers of Christ and the beginning of an eternity in hell without Christ for people that I know and I love. So it's hard for me, honestly, it's very hard for me to say unreservedly, come Lord Jesus. It's hard for me to say that. Still, whether or not we can clearly discern dates or events, we believe Jesus Christ will return. Scripture's presentation of the end times has nothing to do with figuring out the details. It has everything to do with being ready. In 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, we find that image of the day of the Lord coming like a thief. But what Jesus is saying here is watch, not speculate. When we look at the 2 Peter chapter 3 passage, we see that we are to live expectantly. And then there's 1 Peter 4, 7 which says the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. So you can pray. So you can pray. Not so you can figure out who is the Antichrist. Not so you can figure out when the tribulation begins and when we're going to be lifted out of all this. Not so you can figure out when the rapture is scheduled. There's, a, there's rapture clocks on the Internet, too. You may have seen those. Jim Grinnell once preached a message about the enemy of our souls, the devil. And two of the phrases he used in that context apply, I think, here this morning to what we're looking at as well. One thing he said is, be alert but not impressed. And then he said, be aware but not obsessed. He was talking about the enemy, but I think we can apply that here as well. Alert and aware in our context this morning means we are to be spiritually ready 
living holy lives, understanding the times we live in related to our faith in Christ. Do you think that only applies if we know when Jesus will return? Or do you think that always applies? Do you think if we knew, for example, let's just say for the sake of argument, we knew for a fact that Scripture says the return of Christ was 100 years away from today, do you think that Scripture tells us this so we can slack off for the next 99 years and begin to worry about it in that last year? Of course not. Of course not. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, Be clear-minded and self-controlled. Be alert. Be aware. But if we're to be obsessed about anything, it should be what follows verse 7 in 1 Peter chapter 4. Paul talks about love covering a multitude of sins. He talks of how we should offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. He talks about how we should serve. All these are the practical outworking of how we should love and obey God. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, Paul notes that the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is over, the day is almost here. Then it's interesting to know what Paul does in this passage after that uh, admonition to us. He proceeds to focus on our attitude and our behavior for the rest of the chapter. These are the things that God wants us to focus on, regardless of the nearness or farness of his return. Of course, you know, the truth is today is closer than the day we first believed, isn't it? But so will tomorrow be, if there is a tomorrow. Prophecy's purpose is to make us holy, to make us ready. Yes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. This conveys both the fact that it's unexpected, and it also conveys a threat for people who aren't ready. Despite God's patience, those who remain unrepentant should be fearful. For the day of the Lord marks the end of God's patience and the arrival of his judgment. The best way to get ready for tomorrow is not to figure out when that day will be, but to be ready today. A time will come when no further preparation is possible. You know, we're not living in the only age, the only time in human history when there were sufficient signs to take seriously Jesus' admonition to us. For example, the admonition in Matthew twenty-four forty-two, where he said, Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. There's a story of a man named Colonel Davenport, and he was the speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives in the late 1700s. On May 19, 1780, the sky of Hartford darkened ominously, and some of the representatives were glancing out the window, and it was so dark and so fearsome looking that they feared that the end was at hand. Quelling a clamor for immediate adjournment, Davenport rose and said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. That says very well what I hope my attitude will be. I want to be the Lord's slave. I want to be doing my duty if Jesus returns in my lifetime. Amen? 
In the Bible, the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. This means that both the pessimistic view that the church has no constructive role on the earth other than saving souls and the optimistic view that the fullness of the kingdom of God can come about apart from the physical return of Christ are equally false. We are, we are to be concerned about redeeming culture and thus extending the kingdom into every area of human endeavor. But at the same time, we should have no illusions that the world only will get better through our efforts. Satan and the sin nature are still very much at work, and who can fathom the depths of their capacities for evil? It will take nothing short of the second coming to fully rein them in. There will be a second coming. Until then, let's faithfully, let's wholeheartedly do our duties as followers of the one that we are waiting on to return. Amen? Father, we thank you for the truth that Jesus will return to take his children home. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you, Father, for these admonitions to live our lives in such a way as to be ready for that return, whether that return is 10 minutes, 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 years, 10 decades, 10 centuries. Father, we want to be ready. We want to be people who are ready. We want to be people who are living lives, doing our duty, doing what you've called us to do right up to that minute, Lord, right up to that hour, Lord, that day and that hour that you do, in fact, return to take your children home. Father, help us to be discerning as we look at the issues surrounding the end times and help us not to hold so tightly onto our own understanding of these things, that we forget the main point. We forget, Father, that your admonition was that we would be watchful and waiting and ready. Father, help us to remember these things even as we face uh, the many voices that are out there saying something different. Help us to be mindful of these things and protect us, Father God, from falsehood, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.